This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, this is Madam Adams, Madam Cindy Adams from the New York Post. I'm in it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I'm on WABC AM radio every Sunday from 2 to 3. Now I'm going to burble on. I have decided to say, I have to tell you, it's lousy story, but how not good today is USA's current medical system. I did an investigation per a very high-ranking doctor in charge of one of our major hospitals. These are the words he told me. He says, the medical system has become an unrecognizable system. We have to fight for health while financial professionals are buying us up and out. They are buying out the medical professionals. Beth Israel, it's shutting down. Mount Sinai, it's losing fortunes. New York City hospitals are going out of business. The medical system has hit financial stress. He said to me, hiring is low. Banks are running things. Pay attention. Banks are running the medical system. Pre-pandemic Wall Street saw lots of waste. Now administering to America's aged, infirmed, and those in urgent need is private equity. This is a man, I want you to know, who is in a major position in the medical system in one of New York's top hospitals. He said, hedge funds some are old money firms are now buying up MDs, not just hospitals, individual MDs. They are paying doctors to sell their practices. Some's offered beats what they earn with stethoscope. This city is old, and it has big numbers of little walk-in curbside clinics. Even more than hundreds of these places are now being brought up, then resold. And to whom? Are you ready? They are being resold to Walgreens. Walgreens has so far paid out $9 billion. That's with a B. $9 billion. Walgreens has bought every urologist in one particular state. All these medical professionals in their 50s and 60s have retired immediately. They have now become what we call shareholders. Young doctors have begun working for Walgreens now. New York State is now trying to commoditize health care, selling it like it's pork belly. They're even picking off young medical professionals and leaving behind a total, complete vacuum for the elderly and the needy. This is a story I had to tell. I have listened to it. I had to tell it. He said to me that young doctors have now become working for Walgreens. New York State 
is now trying to commoditize the entire health care industry. They are selling it. They don't care about people. They don't care about aged. They don't care about need. They are picking off the young professionals in the medical industry, and they are leaving behind a vacuum. Okay, I felt I had to tell that. It's not about Christmas, but I felt I had to tell. I also want to tell one more thing that has nothing to do with an interview. One note about the actress Felicity Huffman. You will recall she went to jail for her involvement in 2019's college admissions scandal. She has just stated publicly that, quote, I felt I would be a bad mother if I didn't do it. This is now just my opinion. You can disagree with me, but I have friends involved. I now know of mothers who are paying, quote, end quote, helpers. They are paying these helpers $60,000 in cash just to help get their kids into Ivy School. It's the system. It is endemic to today's lifestyle. It is the same as our medical profession. It is going to hell. However, I am not going to hell, at least not tonight, today. I am going to talk to you about some very interesting people, like Janet Ivanovich, who has been called the number one mystery writer, and about the Big Apple Circus, which is in New York and you must see. And right now, we're coming to a station break, and I'll be right back. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am now about to speak with Janet Ivanovich. And everybody knows that all the books places always list her as the very number one best fiction writer. Dark, the comedy, not the comedy writer, the crime writer. How long does it take, Janet, to write a book? Well, you know, to quote Mickey Spillane, how bad do I need the money? Yeah, okay. You don't need any money. So how long does it take? Um, it takes anywhere from um, probably around six months. Um, some of that is just thinking, you know, trying to figure out um, where I'm going to go with the next book, um, what do I want to accomplish with it, taking some notes, 
um, uh, you know, doing a little outlining. I don't, I don't have a big outline. And then when I actually start writing, I think it's, you know, maybe four months of uh, straight out writing. What, what do you yourself read? Like at Christmas time, I'm storing up 87 books so I can read. What do you read at Christmas time? Cookbooks. I like what? cookbooks. Why cookbooks. I don't, well, I don't read fiction because it interferes with my own writing. You know, I never have downtime. I'm always writing. I stop a book and I start a new one. And when I read fiction, you know, I go to bed at night with that book in my head. And I wake up in the morning with that oh. book in my head and I can't afford to do that. So I read cookbooks. I don't cook. I'm, I'm a, nobody wants to eat my cooking. I defrost. I'm a defroster. But I, but I, love, but I love to read cookbooks. Well, tell me how I have to write a column every day, and I don't know how I can do it half the time. So tell me, how does an idea come? Are you schlepping around everywhere with scraps of paper in your pocket? How does it come? No, you know, I have lots of ideas. Ideas are not the hard part. The hard part is the nitty-gritty of actually writing and doing a great job of it, you know, making the book easy so my reader doesn't have to work. I mean, that's that's what takes the time, and that's the hard part. It's, you know, it's the skill that's involved. But um, but the ideas, I mean, I, I will never be able to do all of my ideas. I mean, the ideas, I get ideas everywhere. I get it from television, from movies, from real life, from sitting in bars and watching people, from, you know, all of my history, which I have a lot of because I'm pretty old. So. <laughs> okay, um, these, these, these might seem like dumb questions, but... How, if you're sitting in a bar or you're doing anything or you're on a trolley, how does an idea come looking at a person, sitting, seeing somebody? How does an idea formulate? I think all this stuff just goes into my head. I, I think of my head as being a big stew pot, you know, and you throw in all the carrots and the peas and the potatoes and, and some meat and everything in it. And it just kind of cooks up in there. And then I wake up in the morning and I have an idea. It's yeah. observation. It's, it's, it's um, you know, I mean, writers are voyeurs. We watch people. We're, we're nosy. We snoop. We eavesdrop. And, um, and this is all, you know, it all goes in. I mean, when I'm talking to someone, I'm looking at their feet because I want to see what kind of shoes they're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I sort of understand that. Do you remember doing your first book? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, the first book never got published, um, and I remember I remember all, all of that struggle. Um, but the first book that finally did get published was, um, you know, romance, and um, I was very insecure. I had no idea, you know, if I was going to be published, if because I'd had so much failure up to that point. I mean, it took me ten years to get published. Had, you mean you had been writing and you hadn't published anything? Oh yeah, yeah. I was I, I was an overnight success that took fifteen years. Yeah. What did you do with the stuff that you wrote? Did you not send it to publishers and try? Oh my God! I sent it to everybody. I I sent out um, completed manuscripts. I I was on, I tried to get published for ten years, and um, in the beginning it was very strange. Things because I was a product of the Rutgers art department, you know, so very esoteric 
um, incredibly bizarre projects. Yeah. And then finally, as I became a mom and, um, and a housewife, and I was reading romance novels, I moved over into trying to write some of that romance. And that was how I finally got um, success, was writing a romance novel. But it was, it was hard. It was, and I had, by the time I was published, um, I had a huge packing box um, I'm not talking shoebox. I'm talking big, huge cardboard box filled with rejection slips. And um, I had given up um, because it had been so long and so difficult. And I took them outside and I sat on the curb in front of my house and I burned them all, oh. which I really regret now because some of them were classic. And got a job uh, working as a temp. Um, and I had that job for, I don't know, three, four months maybe. And um, uh, and got a phone call saying um, that um, somebody wanted to buy my book. It was the second chance at Loveline and changed my life forever. Okay, I mean, maybe this sort of sounds dumb, but how come you didn't switch to maybe crocheting or doing something else? Why would you stick to something when you'd had so many rejections? Because I love doing it because it had become incredibly, incredibly important to me. And I had this super supportive family who kept saying, you know, you can do it. You know, my two kids who never said, um, why can't we have expensive sneakers? You know, they said, you know, you don't need to go out and, and get a job. We don't, you know, you can, you can do this. I mean, everybody supported my dream. And it was that the more I wrote, the more I loved writing, the more I wanted to succeed. I want, I, I wanted you know, I wanted to communicate. I, I wanted to be part of that whole um, community out there of readers and writers. And, um, you know, I wanted worldwide success. I just I just wanted it so bad that, you know, um, it was very difficult to give up. When you started, when you were just young and you had you had kids, where were you writing? Were you writing on the kitchen table? How were you writing? Did you have a computer? Um, no, in the beginning, and this was so long ago, there, you know, there were no computers. This was, <laughs> um, I, uh, in the beginning, I would, um, I, I wrote by hand. Oh, oh uh, and then, uh, and then my husband was teaching at Lafayette College, and I would go over at night after the kids were in bed. I would go over to his office at night and use his um, secretary's Selectric typewriter. Uh, oh. And then, yes, yes, and um, and and that was you know the days when, uh, you know, you were making carbon copies to send your. I know them well. Yes, out. yes, uh, and then when I finally sold um, my first book, which was for a huge amount of money, two thousand dollars, I oh. just thought I was so rich, um, and uh, when I sold that first book, we went into New York. Um, because um, somebody had told us about this bargain store on Canal Street where you could get a cheap typewriter. <laughs> and we drove in from from New Jersey in, into Canal Street, and I got my first typewriter, all my own. What did you do with the two grand that you got? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I have a feeling at, at that point... Um, that we were so in debt. 
<laughs> sad. Okay. It, just, okay. it just got absorbed, you know, by other things. And the, and the, the thing is, you know, I got $2,000 um, for that first book, but then um, I didn't sell another book for a year. So, and I had quit my job. I had quit my, my uh, oh, manpower yeah. job. So we sort of like couldn't buy oranges, you know, for a year. <laughs> but then after the year was up, um, I got a multi, I, I kept submitting and I got a multiple book contract. I sold three books for, I think, I don't know, $21,000. And I mean, that we, we just, we thought we were just so well off. I mean, that was just, you know, because I mean, that was a lot of money um, then. What I remember is when I made the movie sale and my agent called up at like nine o'clock at night because, you know, that was when the um, when the bidding had ended on the West Coast and told me that I was a millionaire. I mean, that is just engraved in my mind. I mean, that I remember. And what did did you do with that money? um, I I went out first thing next morning. my husband couldn't go on the shopping um, visit with us because he had a migraine. He was so overwhelmed. <laughs> so, so my son and I went out. And what I remember is that I couldn't sleep because I couldn't stop smiling. It's like, you know how you smile so much, your face like freezes. Uh, and, but my son and I went out first thing in the morning and we went to the mall and I couldn't bring myself to spend any money. I mean, when you, when you're, you know, clipping coupons for so many years of your life and then all of a sudden somebody tells you you have this money, it doesn't matter. You know, you can't change your – so what I ended up buying was – this, and this is, you know, perfect – towels, new bathroom towels because all of my towels, you know, when you wash them and you use them and they get those strings hanging down because – I don't have that them. problem, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and oh. so, yes, I splurged and I bought um, new towels. And then just before the shopping center closed, I got a bread baking machine. Now, Oy, nobody <laughs> nobody bothers with it, but that was, you know, and I think I used it three times. So probably each loaf of bread cost me $30 or something. You I don't probably know. still have the same stupid thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, a relic now. It's. What's what's um, so, happening? Yeah, but that was that was amazing. What is happening today with literacy? Are kids reading? Um, yeah, kids are reading. I think adults are not. Um, I think that there's a subset of adults that are reading, um, but to a large extent, um, social has destroyed a lot of that. Um, people don't have the attention span. Um, It's easier to go online and to TikTok and Facebook and do all of this stuff. Um, You can do it for 15 minutes. Um, You don't have to think about it. You don't have to go out and buy anything. It doesn't cost you anything really. So I think that it's the adult population that is not reading like they used to. I think that the kids are. I think that um, there are some groups that are not reading so much. I have a 13-year-old grandson, and a couple years ago, um, I'd say probably age 9, 10, my daughter realized that there were not a lot of books out there for boys at that age. There were tons of books for girls, and people were saying, well, you know, boys don't read books. 
And she said, no, it's that people aren't writing the kinds of books that boys want to read. You know, they, they don't want all the drama. They, they want adventure. Uh-huh. And so she actually wrote a book for my grandson. And a year ago, I read it and I said, this is fantastic. And I, I handed it to my agent, um, uh, Celeste Fine. And she thought it was great. And the result is that my daughter just got a three-book contract with, a, for, with uh, Simon & Schuster. And her first book comes out next fall for well, boys. That's a true muzzle tough. Now I have to ask you, did you ever hear, did you ever hear from an irate reader who, if you ever got something wrong? Oh, all the time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hear from irate readers even when things aren't wrong. You know, they just... What do they, they they get snotty, they're ungrateful. How do, what do they do? Dear Rotten? How, How do they do it? Well, first of all, you know, in the Plum series, um, I have this woman who has this thing with, you know, two hot guys. And so my readers are divided in half. You know, some like um, Ranger, some like Joe Morelli. And, um, you know, if I don't have enough of one in one of the books, then I hear it. You know, why isn't there more Ranger? Um, so so I get some of that. Um, I mean, they aren't snotty. You know, they're just people who are saying, you know, you didn't satisfy my needs. Um, and then I do get people who pick out all of my mistakes and I do make mistakes. Um, in the beginning, Joe Morelli had a scar on his eyebrow and then, um, the scar kept, uh, changing sides cause I, I was sloppy and couldn't remember which eyebrow it was, you know, it's stuff like that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do you keep books i started to um this this sounds dreadful i've been throwing out some books because i just don't have enough room for them all you can't keep all the books you read yeah i you know i've never understood that like i know people who have like their walls lined with books i know i know know. they're never going to read again i mean how many people read a book two and three times nobody yeah um so but I guess, you know, they're just these beloved things and part of your history. And um, I don't so much have that problem because my books are, you know, lately cookbooks. And people think that they serve some sort of purpose in my life, which, of course, they don't. But (laughs) it's just to keep me amused. Okay, but Janet Ivanovich is such a famous writer. What is your background? Where Where do you come from? How did you start? Um, my dad worked in a factory. Uh, my mom was a homemaker. I'm second generation American. Um, grew up in South River, New Jersey, a little town, mostly, um, not maybe not mostly, but at least half immigrants. You know, certainly I was in a little immigrant pocket. And um, I'm first person in my family to graduate from college. My parents were the first to graduate from high school. And I'm the American dream. You know, I, I did it. I, the promise that America makes to people, if you, you know, work hard and get lucky, you know, that's me. Listen, I believe in every single thing about America, everything. But yeah. now, now go back. Crime fiction. Why mysteries? Why not love stories? Why not sports stories? Why, why mysteries? Well, you know, I started with romance. And um, and I love that. 
but I was having a hard time getting all those pages out of just relationship. Uh, it just wasn't my thing. So little by little, I noticed that these little mysteries were creeping into my romance stories and my editors were kind of pulling them out. And, um, and after, I don't know, like 12 books, I decided maybe I was in the wrong spot and uh, maybe I needed to move out of that. And, and at the time, you know, um, this was, this was a long time ago. This was, I don't know what, 40 years ago and mystery, um, did not have all of the rules that romance had, at least the romances I was writing. You know, you couldn't cuss. Um, you had to have a certain amount of, you know, real sex involved. <clears throat> so I decided I needed to move out of the genre. And what I did was um, I made a composite of the things that I loved about romance, the positive characters, the feel good the happy ending, and I squashed them into the Chris, the uh, mystery format and came up with the Plum series. And it just happened to be the right thing at the right time. Um, I'm a big believer in finding the hole in the marketplace. And I, I think that's what I did. I found, um, I found a spot that the reader was looking for and had not had it made available to them. You know, there were a lot of women doing crime fiction at the time with uh, female protagonists like Sue Grafton and Sarah Presky. But those women really were um, were women in men's clothing. You know, they were they were not they were not Jersey girls. Uh, I, I decided I needed to write um, about a Jersey girl. And, you know, that's what I did. And it just, you know, it worked for me. You know. I'm speaking, if anybody just tuned in, and why did you tune in late? I'm speaking to Janet Ivanovich. I went to a restaurant a while back, and one diner was sitting there actually reading your book, Top Secret 21. Do you remember that? Um, no, no okay. I never remember any of my books. I, Fine. Okay. No, this is, this is true. This is true. I dumped them out of my head. I have limited capacity in my head. And so when I'm done with a book, it goes to my publisher and then it goes to the reader and it belongs to them. And I go to signings and my my fans, my readers, they know every detail about my books and I remember nothing. It's very embarrassing. Well, I want to tell you, Janet Ivanovich, I speak to you once every 15, 20 years, and it was great to get you on the phone and send me a book. Why should I go out and pay to read a Janet Ivanovich book when I can get it from you for free? I will send you any book you want, anytime you want, <laughs> and I think we should do this more often. Okay, okay. Tell me when you're coming into town, and I'm going to call you when I go to where you are, Okay. That's a deal. That's a definite deal. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, Janet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Happy Christmas. Oh, you're Merry welcome. New Year. Yes, back at you. Okay, honey. Thanks. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I've got two guys from the great circus that I watched. It is so great. You've got to go. You've got to eat the popcorn. And the circus is terrific. Okay, so Marty, you are the CEO. 
What does it mean? What does the CEO of a circus do? Well, there's a uh, there's a number of uh, hats I wear as CEO of the Big Apple Circus. Uh, I oversee the development of the creative team. Uh, I oversee all the operational elements. Uh, Cindy, as you know, we present our shows in a big top circus tent uh, that we install at Lincoln Center. So there's a lot of operational aspects to that. And then, of course, marketing and sales. Uh, we need to get the word out uh, as much as possible. So I oversee uh, those, those areas as well. Okay. Now I go to the clown. I think he was Devlin. What's your background? Uh, I'm a circus performer, and I'm the seventh generation in circus uh, family performing on stage. That's my uh, background. And uh, I study in uh, Fratellini School in Paris, clowning and acrobatic. How did you uh, start? How did you start? I started because uh, my parents decided to put me on stage when I was two years old to start to learn how to uh, be a clown. And uh, since then, I never stopped. And uh, and I mostly learn meeting other clowns and other artists. How do you start being a clown? What do you have to do to be a clown? You just have to schlep around and walk. What do you do to be a clown? Always when I say how to be a clown, you have to be yourself. A clown is not just uh, an act or uh, tricks you can learn. It's uh, really your character. And on stage, you have to be yourself and uh, communicate with the audience and uh, have a see the response there with you. It's a really uh, organic uh, uh, way to work, to be a clown. You're directly in contact with the eyes of the audience. Marty, how did you get into this? Why, why the circus? So I also came to this business as a performer. I was a gymnast when I was a kid, and I have an identical twin brother that I learned to juggle with, and we realized that we could do juggling tricks and combine those tricks with acrobatics and piece together a little circus act. So when I was growing up in high school, I went all around the world performing a seven-minute acrobatic juggling act. And I actually met Paul Binder, who is the founder of the Big Apple Circus, who was the artistic director there for 35 years at a circus festival in Paris back in 2003. This was over 20 years ago now. And at the time, he invited my brother and I to come perform in the Big Apple Circus as a guest uh, as a guest act for a full season. And so we were in the ring performing with the Big Apple Circus the last year that Paul Binder was artistic director, which was the 2008-2009 season. So that was 15 years ago now, which is hard to believe. And then I continued working at the Big Apple Circus in guest relations uh, for a couple of years. And then I left the business. I worked in the talent agency world and I ran a little production company. And about a year and a half ago, the uh, current owners of the Big Apple Circus asked me to rejoin in this capacity so it's a full circle moment for me in a lot of ways did you ever flop when you were doing your act i've always wondered what happens of course. to people what well of tell course. me tell me what happens yes no so juggling juggling in particular is really precise and over seven minutes especially when you have a partner you're throwing and catching thousands of times and there's so many different little variations that you have to respond to in terms of temperature and in terms of drafts through uh, sort of wind drafts throughout the, the big top. So we were, we were pretty solid and we didn't mess up very often, but we would. And one of the things that my coaches uh, would train us to do is to respond to mistakes. So when we were training our act, they would walk around and they would deliberately knock 
the clubs out of our hands and have them oh, be thrown all over the floor. So we would learn how to adapt in those situations so that anything that would go wrong, you just recover from. And in some ways, when you're in, in the ring, especially at the Big Apple Circus, where it's such an intimate setting, I think sometimes when you make some mistakes, people are reminded that you're human and they see that it's actually really hard what you're doing. And in some ways, they, they root for you even more. So if you can tap into that energy, uh, a few mistakes here and there, don't, they don't set you back much do you ever really screw up either of you did you ever really screw up devlin or you marty really screw up and lose your place or whatever the hell you're supposed to do i have no, 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 <laughs> no me never i have to say i have a little uh advantage on marty like when i do mistake um is nothing uh dropping is uh i can always manage to find another way if pe people don't laugh I will try another way to do uh, another way to make them laugh. And maybe you don't see it so much. That's mean uh, I never really do so much big mistake. When I was acrobat, yes, I fall. But when you fall in doing acrobacy, it's difficult to continue just after. That's mean my partners will right. just continue to act and I had to go nicely outside of stage <laughs> and uh, pretending everything is good. But um, as a clown, the it's what what i like is like even if you make a mistake you can always find another way to uh, make it was natural and i mean guys like you never break up yourself and start laughing or or start crying or whatever the hell you never lose your your place composure no no, no i don't think i don't think we've ever i've ever lost my composure Devlin. i'm sure you haven't uh juggling no. it's, it's harder to it's harder to cover up mistakes and yeah. when you're in this business Oftentimes you're doing 10 to 14 shows a week, week after week. So you do thousands of performances over a number of years. So there's always bound to be something that goes wrong. I remember when I was performing at a variety theater in Frankfurt, Germany, my brother and I had a collision on stage and we had our props be thrown out. They were, they were sort of like projectiled into the audience and we heard all these glasses breaking and shrieks. Uh, uh. That was probably the worst. <laughs> But, you know, but we recovered. We got the props on stage. There's a, in most of these settings, there's a live orchestra and a huge benefit to that as a circus performer is that when something goes wrong, the music uh, can, can recalibrate. And so you don't really have to catch up anyway. And the props come back on stage and it, you figure out how to, how to get through the next five minutes or whatever, you know, what, whatever is required. Tell me how circus performers live. Do they live in little trailers? I don't know exactly. I've been backstage, but I don't know how a whole circus lives. You want to so talk about it? Yeah, well, I, well, Devlin, I'll, I'll jump in and then you can you can um, explain the experience here. But Cindy, it really depends on on the circus. Uh, there's there are different models. Uh, the circus that Devlin has spent a lot of time with in in Germany, called Circus Theater Roncalli, has a circus village, and most people live on site. And and similar the Big Apple Circus, we actually do operate a circus village. So when you were asking me about what my job is, that's also part of it, organizing, running the circus village. So we have about 80 people uh, who live on site uh, in, in trailers and various arrangements uh, that, we, um, that we provide for them. So we effectively act as their landlord. Uh, Devlin, you can speak to what it's like to live at the Big Apple Circus this year. That, what is fantastic and, uh, here is because we live next to the tent, 
We are in a little village. Marty is like uh, our little mayor. He's the mayor of the village, of the circus village. <laughs> and, uh, I'll take that. Yeah, and uh, and we all living all together. We experiment the the show together because we all met here actually to create the show for Big Apple and Roncalli on place uh, ten days before. And like, it's really like uh, living in a trailer. You have this experience to be uh, on the place, uh, feeling the audience coming in, listening the other acts uh, performing. I'm always on stage because as a resident director, I have to stay always there. But the other artists perform, go to backstage, can go back to the trailer, and they still have the feeling of the show because they're next to the tent. And that is something you can't have if you go to live in an apartment or in a house out of the theater or the big top, you know? Okay, guys. Are there favorite circus cities where you do better in some city than you do others? I mean, I loved, I adored the Big Apple Circus. But tell me, are there certain cities where it goes better? Well, the Big Apple Circus currently only plays in New York City. Uh, the, the company used to tour uh, across the eastern seaboard, and that was scaled back a number of years ago. So for the Big Apple Circus, it really is about New York City now. We'll probably tour again in the future, but this is, uh, this is the only place we, we present the show now. Would you never like to live a normal nine-to-five life? I, I, I've tried that, and it didn't work. Definitely, I don't know if you've ever tried that, but... Uh, Why didn't it work? Why didn't it work? Aren't you a nice person? Why didn't it work? Were you lousy to your wife? I like the excitement of show business. I like the the integration of personal and professional. And Devlin can speak about this. I mean, Devlin Devlin exudes circus showmanship. But being in the circus, it's, it's really a lifestyle. It's not a job. And it's a lifestyle that comes with a lot of challenges, but it comes with a lot of Excitement. What challenges? Tell me about the challenges. We don't know. We're sitting in the audience. We're eating your lousy popcorn. We don't know anything <laughs> else. What the are the challenges? <laughs> uh, the challenges. There's. I mean, there's. There's so many. There's. There's the. Um, there are the physical challenges uh, with being a performer and in the ring. And I. I when I was performing, I was still in my twenties, so uh, my body hurt, but it didn't. You know, I was able to manage it. But Devlin, he's in the ring two hours a day, three times three times a day occasionally. So there's, there's just the physical uh, challenges that all circus performers have to, have to meet. And then there's also the challenges associated with being away from home for extended periods of time. And in the circus industry in, in particular, uh, especially when you're operating under a big top environment a lot of times there's weather related challenges we have to temperature control the venues and sometimes that's not perfect so a lot of times people are operating under pretty challenging conditions and then the 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 operational teams they have to move these move these facilities into location and off location it's just grueling it's grueling demanding work and every day you're 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 dependent on the public buying tickets. <laughs> so, so there's that, there's that challenge as well, but, but it's all, it's all worth it when, when you're close to the circus and, and you see the impact that the performances make uh, to, to children and their families. Would either of you ever want your kids, if you ever had kids or if you were married, I don't know, but would you ever want your kids to be a clown or to be in the circus? Absolutely. Devlin, why? What do you think? why? Why? What's so for great me, about me, schlepping around in a circus as opposed to...
living in a high-class apartment on Park Avenue and not having to worry if something breaks. I don't understand. You have to tell the, me. The only, the only reason I will love my child, uh, or even friend of people I know, to be in a circus is because we meet so many different people from so many different cultures, so many different uh, backgrounds. It's so rich for yourself to grow up around this, uh, all these different people. I think that's the best uh, thing you can wish for your kids or for someone. Is the the fact you, first of all, you're free to do what you love, and second, you meet so many different people, and that's the most precious thing, I think. That's why I came back to circus. Huh? <laughs> okay. I think that so when, now you're, we... when you're go ahead, yeah, go, go go go. I was just going to say when you're when go you're ahead. performing in the ring or around the ring, and you're connected to the audience, and you see the impact that you're making on audience members, it might not be, you know, it, it might be subtle. It might be, um, you know, not something that, you know, changes people's lives overnight, but it really does bring this pure spirited sense of joy and wonder to, to people. And we see it in, you know, smiling faces and, and it's just, it's really meaningful. And I think that's what drives a lot of us and, and um, you know, uh, allows us to endure, the challenges we've discussed. What happens with no animals anymore? We cannot have any more animals ever again? Well, in the Big Apple Circus, we can still potentially introduce uh, domesticated animals, so dogs and cats. Last year, we had, a, we had an act with five poodles that was really popular and, and really sweet. And most of the animals in that context we work with are, are rescue rescue animals and um, th there aren't too many sensitivities around that but the the, the bigger animals the exotic animals the, the world has moved on from moved on from that and, and I, I believe there's a way to kindle the, the the sense of what circus is without using animals uh, Devlin do you want to speak to animal circus theater on Kali in Germany hasn't used any animals for a number of years so I'm sure you have a view on that then it's like in uh, Ben Apol decided like around six years ago, seven years ago to don't have any more animals in the circus theater Roncalli because the, it was, it started to be a, a demand of the audience in Europe. And um, we didn't see like exactly the necessity to continue to have animals on stage. Uh, and in uh, the first circus in Europe, we decided to completely stop to work with uh, animals and bring Animals just like we have a show where the, the show starts with holograms and all the animals are present in holograms and, and uh, you can uh, feel them but without having them on stage properly. The, I think it's like the time change. I, I grew up in a circus where it was animals and uh, wild animals but now we travel so much. People can travel and see so many things uh, around the world and in the, in, in the real um, uh, nature. We don't need to have wild animals uh, on stage anymore. That's the, the, okay, the main Okay, uh, I'm not sure I understand purpose. that, but that's okay. What about today's technology? Has it changed anything, the way you work or the, the stuff that you put up? Because I've, I've seen all your rafts and all of your things that you've done. It's tricky to put up all those things. Does technology help today? It certainly can. It certainly can. I think that what is so magical about 
the Big Apple Circus and, and Circus Theater on Collie in Europe in this one ring format, it really is about the connection to human beings. And so we wouldn't want technology to get in the way of that. Uh, so I, I do think that there are exciting technological innovations that can support and enhance that connection. Devlin mentioned uh, holograms. There's some really effective use of projections and hologram technology in circus theater on Kali in Europe that really enhance the experience but don't detract from, from the human beings. But we're always looking at technological advancements and materials and uh, things like the seating systems and the rigging and the theatrical systems, lighting, sound, all those elements. And there's a lot of really interesting new techniques and equipment that will allow us to continue moving the circus forward and, uh, and introduce visually spectacular elements uh, to support the performers. Okay, I loved the Big Apple Circus. I loved it. I adored it. I would like to ask, can a clown, when he is feeling down, still be up and clown? Yes. And um, I, I have I had to experiment that. I lost, like, uh, a very close friend and uh, 10 years ago and, uh, and some members of my family also. And I had to perform two shows in a day. That's been uh, the audience don't know how uh, how we feel, but we have to give them the best we can, and uh, I think um, that's not just for the clown. I think for every artist, we never bring our uh, personal life on stage, and uh, we just like close our eyes and we do what we have to do, and we're still making laugh people because it's what uh, uh, is the most important for us. Like somebody on stage, I know. Oh, okay, okay, but has a clown routine. I mean, this it sounds dumb. It's a dumb question, but d does a clown routine ever offend anybody? Some stupid person sitting ringside, if you throw something at them or something, do you ever offend anyone working? Myself, not. But sometimes, uh, um, yes, can happen, because not everyone can get a joke. And that's normal. And, uh, um, we have to find a way, in this case, to... Uh, make him laugh in another system and to don't make him feel uncomfortable. But that's happened. I have one time um, a member of the audience, I bring him on stage and uh, he was, he didn't like to be uh, uh, ridiculous on stage. I just had to find a way to bring him out nicely and take someone else. That's happened one time. But um, we adapt. It's a live show. I think it's the same when you go to the stand-up comedy. Sometimes they do some jokes and you don't laugh and you... Uh, and your friend will laugh of the joke. It's the same. It's a normal okay. life. Anybody who is listening, you have to go to see the Big Apple Circus. It's here in New York. I loved it. I loved it. And I love speaking to Devlin. And I love speaking to Marty. And I'm going to go back and see it a second time. And I'm looking forward to more popcorn. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming <laughs> Thank on. You. And I want Thank everybody to come see your circus. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Cindy. It was a pleasure having you at the okay, circus this year. Okay, sweeties. Thank you. Bye.